Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. Our play of the week is Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, And here's a quick overview of the plot before we dive in with Declan and Nick. The play takes place in Vienna. The Duke has decided to abandon his post, leaving a bureaucrat, Angelo, in charge. Instead of leaving Vienna, the Duke disguises himself as a monk and secretly watches his city. Angelo reinstates an ancient law which criminalises sex outside marriage. A young couple, Claudio and Juliet, discover that they are expecting a baby, Claudio is sentenced to death under Angelo's law. Claudio's sister Isabella is a novice nun. She goes to Angelo to beg for her brother's life. Angelo offers to spare Claudio if Isabella has sex with him. She refuses. Isabella visits Claudio in prison and Claudio begs her to save his life. The Duke, in his disguise as a monk, overhears their conversation and steps in to help them. He reveals that Angelo has an ex-fiancée, Mariana, who he badly mistreated. Isabella and Mariana come up with a plan to get revenge on Angelo and save Claudio. Isabella tells Angelo that she will sleep with him, but only in the dark. Mariana goes in her place, creating proof that Angelo has committed the same so-called crime as Claudio. Angelo orders Claudio to be killed and for his head to be brought to him. The Duke arranges for another prisoner's head to be sent in its place in order to save Claudio. His first candidate, a criminal called Barnardine, refuses to cooperate. And so instead, they decapitate a prisoner who's recently died from an illness. Isabella believes Claudio has died and publicly confronts Angelo, who denies that he ever tried to force it to sleep with him. The Duke reveals his true identity and condemns Angelo to be executed, but only after marrying Mariana. Isabella asks for Angelo to be pardoned. The Duke agrees and ends the play by proposing to Isabella. And now over to Declan and Nick. Hello, Declan and Nick. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. So today we're going to talk about Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, which was a production you did most recently in 2013 with the Russian company. What is it about Measure for Measure that haunts you? Nick, why don't we start with you? It's... A fascinating um, so-called problem play, partly because it's not obviously a comedy and not obviously a tragedy, so it doesn't quite fall into that either of those categories. But it is a fascinating play because it's about um, a city, and it's about actually any city. It's like a complete cross-section of a city. And it is always astonishingly relevant when it, whenever you play it, I think, because human beings don't change and cities don't really change. And in the cross-section, you have the Duke, who is an absolute monarch. You have the government. You have prisons. You have an underbelly, a world of of prostitutes and pimps. In almost every respect, it is completely fascinating. It's also got a convent. 
course. Of course. Of course, I forgot that. Yes. <laughs> kind of important. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Declan? What really hooks you about this play? One of the things I love about Roger of Measure is it's got a, a suite of three amazing scenes. Isabella, Angelo, Isabella, Angelo, and then Isabella, Claudio, which are among the greatest scenes ever written. And twists and turns and ups and downs and shocks and surprises and total shifts of tone. And I love them. They're, they're like a they're kind of helter-skelter between two people that are extended and Shakespeare can keep them going and keep you on the edge of your seat during the, the whole thing. Nick, could you describe your design for this production? Because it was incredibly simple and incredibly arresting. Yes, essentially we stripped out the Pushkin stage. So those old repertoire theatres have marvellous galleries and ladders and old lighting rigs and things, which when lit are incredibly atmospheric. And we placed in it really five red boxes big enough to contain, I suppose, a couple of human beings. The idea really stemmed from a struggle to unite the different worlds in the play, which um, we've already touched on the government, the convent and the prison and the city, but at the same time imply the psychological journey, which essentially the play is, of the Duke who observes everything. And, and in this production, he does observe everything. We kind of subjectively follow his journey, um, who at the beginning, of course, has a serious problem with power and he actually delegates power and then chooses to disappear but he stays as an observer on stage throughout. And the red boxes were intended to imply the interior of the Duke's brain, if you like. And so how did the red boxes let you do that? Well, we discovered it quite late on because I designed the red boxes and we really didn't know how to use them until we got well into rehearsal, if I remember rightly. But we could use them to show the Duke various sites of anxiety for him which were the sort of the pulling between like sex, basically, and Isabella is revealed in one of the boxes as a sort of praying ecstatic nun. And also death, as it were, Claudio revealed in an electric chair. So these red boxes had this habit of slowly turning around and revealing on their empty side a little tiny scene, a little snapshot, a little jigsaw piece that was going on in his head whilst he was watching the action. So we got to see two levels of perception on stage at the same time. Yes, because it worked quite well to show his interior life. But also we use that technique of him observing really everything that happened on stage. And so there were moments when the action froze into a sort of tableau and he could move around the stage observing these tableaus, Um, which again, I think we hope put you inside his head. did one other really stark thing in this design which was to lower the ceiling with lights could you describe how you did that well funny enough that was a hangover because we first thought of doing this production in sydney with australian actors and if you go to the sydney theater company you will find that the building they inhabit is lit by these hanging lights 
which I simply moved to Moscow and hung them up in Moscow. They somehow, somehow seemed appropriate. I'm not quite sure why, but they did. Well, it gave it an amazing kind of lowering light over the top of the stage as if they were under sort of sickly street lights. There was something really exposing about that lowered ceiling of lights, but also the cavernous space that it let you have. Yes, well, I'm glad, but there was no particular logic behind it, Lucy, I'm afraid. I just... I rather liked them, so we, we kept them. Well, it's so interesting also to hear you talk about your designers. You know, you thought up these boxes, they seemed really right, but you weren't quite sure how to use them until late into rehearsal. And that you see lights in a theatre in Sydney when you're doing a read-through and put them into production in Moscow. It seems a really intuitive way of working. Yes, I think that's that's true. In my old age, I've become more intuitive, I hope, because I remember when I started out in design, it was completely the opposite. Everything was very much intellectual and worked out. I think things have become freer and, and hopefully better. And how's that for you, Declan? How did you collaborate on this design? Nick and I don't ever really discuss the set. And one day he arrived with this drawing of these five bright red boxes against a stripped out stage. And I thought, oh, right, okay, I had no idea how they'd work. And we worked with them, and it was absolutely wonderful. But it came out with no kind of conscious help from me. But all of our conversations about the play and what we were doing, of course, it's, you know, the, the, the underbelly is there. But I'd never have a rational conversation with Nick about it at, at, at the sort of surface level. We need an entrance here, we need something there, we need this. Never talked to him like that. I, was, I just sort of, be, first of all, a bit flummoxed and then pleasantly surprised when I realised how well it worked. Of course, like everybody else, I have to come with some sort of expectation. And I fantasised we do an extremely Verismo production set in government offices and we kind of alienate out of that. We do filing cabinets and glass doors and so on, like you might see in an office anywhere. But then the actors did their etudes for me, and, and I remember Anya Hallelujah did some fantastic thing as, as nuns scrubbing the floors. And then they did this amazing closing down of the brothel, which was absolutely terrifying, with the, the police rushing in, rushing down the stairs and holding the guns to the heads of the people working in the brothel. It was absolutely terrifying. And they did like four or five things like that. It's interesting because these actors have worked together so long, they know each other so well. <laughs> they really able to sort of like go there for it straight away and present you with the most amazing things. And we thought, God, this is extraordinary. We have to keep this. And this vitality that the actors produced, this incredible intensity of experience they produced for me, really threw into the shade my kind of puny intellectual idea that I went in with. And I was delighted, actually. And so I dispatched my idea and I realised that Nick would have to come up with something. We both realised at the same time we'd have to come up with something much more fluid. So... Could you explain, for someone who might not have heard what an etude is before, what doing an etude is? Etude means different things to different people. It just means study in French, and it's a word that the Russians use. The way I use etudes is that we'll read through the play, but I'll talk in order to draw the actor's attention to the experiences that lurk behind the text. It's not just about plot. The story is, I believe, merely a delivery system for experience. And I'll talk about these experiences, about far from telling them what to do, I will often tell stories that, in an oblique way, I hope, shed some light on the things that are happening. They might be modern things, they might be things in modern politics, they might be personal things, but they don't have to, do, to take my story seriously. It, it's just basically their keys that might unlock something in their imagination. And then... I'll ask the actors to go off and take it away and present me with something. 
I really make, try to make sure they don't invent any improvised dialogue, but oh, the absolute minimum. It's because it's not that. It's just the actual living experience of, like, what is it like to be in a in a convent? What is it like to be in a brothel? What is it like to be in the government office? What is it like to be in prison? What is it like to be frightened and uh, interrogated on arrival in the prison? And then they present me with things. And then those things find their way into the actual play. Yeah, those things always trump um, puny intellectual ideas that we've gone into the rehearsal as a primer with. So now we just go in with a kind of flimsy structure because we know it's going to be squashed because the director's central responsibility is to release the actor's vitality. And that's what's going to save you. And that's my job and Nick's job. Well, this is also really interesting because when you talk about going into rehearsal, you often talk about dumping things at the door that the most useful thing you can do is actually get rid of stuff that's holding you back. And this sounds like you actually did take your big idea and leave it at the door. Well, I think, yeah, I think sometimes you need a bit of an idea. Uh, So I'll talk to the actors about the experiences, but then I'll let them take it away. And then I'll see something and then Nick and I can choose it. And then Nick starts to scribble. It's very good if it's not verbal, the improvisations. It's just basically the atmosphere, the connection, the space. They find these spaces that live. And that's what we live off. Well, actually, in the basement of this hotel was this cellar. And they used this magnificently as introducing Pompey, who was played by Alexei Rachmanov, into prison. And the process of putting him in prison, of taking his possessions and filing them away and then showering him, was absolutely moved wholesale into the final production. And then upstairs there were... Perfect rooms for sort of brothels and and I don't remember if there was a government office. Not no, we invented that in some sort of dining room, but those were really quite chilling. Well, it seems like an extraordinary way of working because it means that everybody has equal ownership over the ideas of the production. I mean, often a, a kind of standard model for for making a play is that the director's kind of leading the ideas, and it sounds here like you cook together, and then your job is to curate what comes into the show. Yeah, I mean, my, my job really is to prime the actors to use their imaginations, their experience, their perceptions to bring worlds alive. And then Nick looks at it, then the set is designed, and then I will direct pretty traditionally um, through through the rehearsal period. But it's, it's had that basis. So the actors know that, that it's come from them. So they have a, a more proud sense of ownership. And I, I like to think they feel they own the place that, that, that they're in. The other thing I think we haven't, which we haven't touched on, um, which I think is remarkable about the production, is the use of the, of the whole company as the chorus. And that started off as an idea, again, sort of exploring the subjectivity of the Duke. So in a way, the chorus presented a cross-section of his brain as well as a cross-section of the city. And the chorus were on stage throughout. And that was amazing because you have substantial actors in there. We're happy to stand in a group watching the proceedings throughout. It's so wonderful that they make themselves so available to work like that. And they work with such enthusiasm and passion. So they'd move in the stage in a, in a kind of controlled group and then they would dissipate and leave behind, as it were, a tableau of maybe a nun, maybe a sex worker. And then the Duke would move, be the only person on stage moving and he'd walk around this still tableau as if he's looking at elements in himself and then they would come to life. 
so we could take something that was mysterious and happening inside him, which we can never explain, but actually show it in space, to show it in spatial terms. So it's like he's moving around his own interiority. And there was an extraordinary first moment to this production. You opened it wordlessly um, with this interaction between him and the chorus. Can you describe those first few moments of the play? Yes, the whole chorus revealed already on stage, grouped, and they uh, move, they begin to move slowly and they're getting faster in the space. And then they separate from the Duke. So the Duke is, as it were, born out of, out of the chorus. And then the chorus mirrors what the Duke is doing. So hopefully we get the idea that the chorus is the Duke and different aspects of the Duke's personality. So in the middle of all this mirroring, with the chorus around the stage copying exactly how the Duke was moving and us feeling that they were two halves of the same thing, the chorus then did something really scary, which is all of a sudden they stopped mirroring the Duke. And this was a really creepy moment because you suddenly felt like he was completely exposed and fractured and somehow alienated from the rest of the community in a way that he was totally out of control of. You could see him being scared by it. Couldn't quite describe why in words. You could see the seeds of why he felt he had to run away at that point. There was something really creepy about this moment when they stop behaving in the way he expects them to. Of course, I absolutely couldn't explain in words either. It was just to have that feeling of somebody being dislocated from themselves which I have to say is a major Shakespearean theme I've discovered, how we are alienated from ourselves. He does that so well and he's so interested in that. And it was so magnificently simple because you basically set up a really basic pattern mm -hmm. and then broke it. Mm -hmm. And in that breaking, we found the heart of the beginning of the play, that he is completely dislocated from, from himself, himself and from the community. Yeah. And this becomes clearer later because, in fact, the actor playing Barnardine leads the chorus, and he is the sort of dark, violent side, if you like, of the Duke. And later on, we'll see him in a sort of wild dance, and Barnardine drags him around these different images. So why did you choose Barnardine, who's a character who's actually very small in the script, to represent this spirit of chaos um, this this kind of extreme part of the Duke's character. Yes, Bondine doesn't have very many lines, but he has the most extraordinary effect in the play. It's a, it's a very violent entrance, incredibly surprising, and very uh, kind of anarchic writing on the part of Shakespeare that really wrenches us. They need to put somebody to death. They need a head, basically. So they get this guy out of death row. But he comes on stage with a huge swagger and says, you know, I'm not going to be beheaded today. Sort of. I'm not putting up with it. And they have a kind of fancy, I suppose, that he's going to be asking for some kind of forgiveness or show some sort of remorse or do some sort of whimpering on the ground or praying or asking for a priest. He doesn't do any of that. And it, he terrifies them by the anarchy that he comes out with. So they, they let him go. But it's an incredible moment of moral anarchy and in exact opposition to Angelo. In, in the Duke's mind, this guy is the kind of the absolute bottom and Angelo is the absolute top. And so we, we, we wanted to have that dualism because of the Duke's conflicted personality. So 
In this way, Bonadine represents the spirit of absolute anarchy and chaos in Vienna, and Angelo represents the spirit of ultimate control and law-abidingness. And both of those things are actually really damaging extremes in this. Yes, they are. Because the Duke is so kind of attracted to Angelo's airy spirituality, his kind of Apollonian superiority to everything, that might lead us to assume there's something he's running away from. And the thing that he's running away from is something like Barnardine that will be in the Duke as well. And that's why we chose him. And it seems a, a thing that's really in the spirit of a lot of the work that you do, looking at two opposing forces that are creating the conditions for the play to happen in. The drama is chaos versus control, Barnardine versus Angelo, and the way that the Duke is torn between the two. So I thought it was incredibly arresting to make Barnardine such a pivotal presence on stage. Yes, I mean, in the world of extreme order, chaos must be very powerful. And it's something that's also been a consistent theme in this series of the podcast, that you often locate the spirit of the play actually in the body of a character who has very few lines. And in fact, the Duke releases Barnardine from prison and, and pardons him, in effect. So in a sense... He's releasing his own dark side while he takes, a few minutes later, Isabella to be his wife, or at least he proposes to Isabella. So we see this kind of resolution in the Duke as he can finally let go of this terrible dualism between Barnardine and Angelo that's been tearing him apart all the way through the play. Exactly. So the Duke has this fracturing of his self and he decides to sort of abandon his post and leave it to Angelo. But Angelo doesn't seem much better as a figure who is tormented by his own perception of the world. So, yes, I mean, Angelo's absolutely rightly exposed, disgraced and punished. That's absolutely right. And he's a monster. He's done unspeakably horrible things. But when we're doing a play, I think it's very good if we can just suspend judgment a little bit to see what's really happening. Angelo, I think, is overcome by logic. I think he thinks that sexual desire is an evil thing. So that when his sexual desire does erupt, it's going to erupt in the nastiest, um, violent way possible. I think one of the things that I referred in a, uh, to an earlier episode to the war between the left-hand side of the brain and the right-hand side of the brain we need both sides of the brain. We absolutely need both sides of the brain. You can't say, oh, this one's good and that one's bad. So the left-hand side of the brain gives us logic, words, analysis, principles, and many other things like that. The right-hand side of the brain gives us mercy, compassion, forgiveness, but it also gives us responsibility and is the only part of the brain that can encounter a new idea. So we absolutely need to harness the two of these things. Principles are very important, but we sometimes discover that principles conflict with each other. It's very painful. And that's when we need the right-hand side of the brain because the right-hand side of the brain admits of responsibility. And responsibility lets in common sense. And between common, with common sense, we can decide which two of these principles on this occasion we're going to let dominate. So Angelo's big problem is that he's completely geared to law, principle, logic. And he doesn't actually use his responsibility at all. He's completely irresponsible. It's like he's been kidnapped by the left-hand side of his brain. Isabella comes in and says, but but it's the crime you need to condemn, not the criminal. And he says, no, no, the, the criminal absolutely must be punished. 
And then he says, the really chilling line I find, mine with a very cipher of a function, if I let go by whatever. In other words, what he's saying is, if I don't punish people, then who am I? I mean, that's my job, so I wouldn't really exist. So you realize he's got an existential investment in the whole business of punishment, which is very dangerous. He gives himself away quite a lot later on when he it finally these sexual feelings do erupt on him and he makes what he knows is an absolutely appalling advance on Isabella and, and gives her the most disgusting proposal. He says, um, God in my mouth as if I did but only chew his name and in my heart the strong and swelling evil of my conception. Now, yes, conception means the idea that's occurred to him, but it also refers to his conception in the womb. And it's this sort of self-hatred which I think is connected with terrible shame. And shame is a major, major theme through the whole play. One of the great lines in the play is when Claudio, when he's arrested at the beginning for having made his girlfriend pregnant, he says, why give you me this shame? So Angelo's big problem seems to be that he's let the left-hand side of his brain, which is full of law and logic, rule the roost, suppress his feelings, and listen to the shame that he's feeling, that any sexual feeling that he has is deeply, deeply shameful. And so ruled by logic and shame, he becomes a monster. And yes, he uses logic to shame other people, and he uses logic to hide his own shame from himself. He's no idea that he's shamed. One of the main themes of the play is about the terrible consequences of shame, what happens when we shame other people, and what happens when we repress our own dark sides. But when these problems start to grow in the head of the state, when it comes from the top down, when it changes laws, then we're in big trouble. And there seems to be a lot of characters in this play who are super attached to playing a version of themselves that's actually deeply unhealthy. And we really saw this with Angelo. You know, he's so attached to this logical, law-abiding version of himself that he turns himself into a monster. And you created this amazing image of him on stage as like the the ultimate bureaucrat behind this desk yes. with his perfectly pressed shirt yes. and his piles of paperwork. A little fortress out of which yeah. this little monster exploded. It's his logic that uh, allows him to say, uh, sexual feelings are bad, I am good. Therefore, I have no sexual feelings. It's algorithm hell. And it's a recipe for a really violent explosion. Yeah, it was extraordinary seeing how much violence was cooking in the body of what looked like a very quiet bureaucrat. And he's very surprised to discover that he doesn't know himself. What's this? What's this? He says. It once again comes back to this idea that nothing happens without the pressure to make it happen. He's not just a monster. He's a monster because he's straight-jacketed himself into this inhuman way of living. Yes, his little inhuman way of living, unfortunately, becomes main state policy. That's the real problem. And this seems to also link to something you said recently about the fact that in Shakespeare, the personal is political. It's really clear here that these tormented men have created a horrifying situation for the whole city. Absolutely. In the list of the actors' names at the beginning, he's called Vicentio, the Duke is. But he's never given a name Vicentio. He's referred to as Vienna, the name of the city. So it's like he is the state. He and the city are inseparable, and the state reflects him. And it was so clear in that first image. I mean, him and this chorus mirroring each other. It was so clear that whatever was happening with him was rippling through the whole community around him. 
So a lot of this play seems to be about people performing versions of themselves, right? The Duke actually changes who he is. He he puts on a disguise and becomes a different version of himself so that he can look back on his life. And Angelo's thrust into the position of playing the part of the leader, this bureaucrat who becomes the tyrant. And this seems to link to something that you were saying recently about the fact that we're actually all performing all the time. Part of being a human is that we are just performing one of the many multiple facets of ourselves. Yes. In order to say that, I have to kind of strip performance of its pejorative sense. You know, the idea that performance is a bad thing and we're just actors. And But actually, that is what we do. And acting is what a human being does. The central part of what it is to be a human being. Uh, when Isabella says to Angelo, you know, condemn the fault and not the actor of it. He says, um, why every fault's condemned, dare it be done, mine with a very cipher of a function to find the faults whose fine stands to record and let go by the actor. And it's so interesting that Shakespeare has Angelo use the word actor. I think an extraordinary thing about Shakespeare is how much he got sorted so young and that he got sorted very early, this idea that human beings are actors, that that's what we do. We perform different versions of ourselves, and that it's not to do with lying, Plato and other people said acting was bad because it, because acting was essentially lying. We must not lie, but we act different roles at different times. That's just what we do. Shakespeare's particularly brilliant at this because very, very early on, like in Richard III, he's already talking about human beings being actors. And when Jacques says one man in his time plays many parts, he's talking about an essential characteristic of what it is to be a human being and to ditch the idea that we have the right to a single authentic self because that's very damaging, I think. And it's certainly a key that's helped open Shakespeare plays for me. So when Angelo uses the word actor, he kind of lets the cat out of the bag because it implies that he has some connection or, or some unconscious understanding of the fact that an actor is a human being, a human being is an actor. So would you say that true authenticity is not saying that we have one authentic self, but that we contain multitudes? Yes, I think we do contain multitudes. We get into trouble when we think we don't, actually. When, like Macbeth, we think we have the right to be one single authentic thing. I grew up in a house without books. I would have had an Irish accent until I was four or five. Um, my dad worked in a factory. And now, you know, here I am doing a podcast about Shakespeare. And I can listen to myself and thinking, oh, God, that's so fake. But actually, I used to think that when I was younger. I used to get very worried that I was somehow being untrue to an authentic self. But then I realised, no, this is an authentic self. This is, this is who I am. I'm, I'm living here with Nick. I'm directing a play. We're talking about this. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's another aspect. It's another authentic self. And Shakespeare's maturity is because he, can, he got there much younger than I did. But it's a great danger to think you're lying about yourself because you're inauthentic, because this is who you really should be. It's, it's really very dangerous, and it's much beloved by populist politicians, because on the whole, the populist politician will say, these terrible other people have taken away your authentic self, but if you vote for me, I'll, I'll restore your authentic self. And the actor must reply to that, which authentic self? And that's why acting is so political irrelevant of the, the political content of the text. Just the actual fact that you're watching somebody stop playing themselves for one moment and start playing somebody else is, is profoundly political. 
And it does seem that there are characters in this play who are completely wedded to the idea that there's an authentic version of themselves. And the characters who do that, so a real violence that they do to themselves, like Angelo, as you said, truly believes that he is a purely logical, law-abiding human who doesn't have sexual feelings, and that turns ugly. But you also showed it magnificently with Isabella. So she has this version of herself as the perfect novice, this woman of God, and she finds it really difficult to let go of it. So at the very end, you actually had the Duke removed her wimple as they finally came together in an embrace and agreed to, to be married. And she instinctively, in the last second of the play, grabbed the wimple back from him as if she couldn't actually let go of this pure version of herself that she had been so steadfast in upholding through the play. Well, that's a very interesting interpretation, but I hope we left room for ambiguity at the end of the play. Does she accept him or not? It has to be said that it's quite difficult to refuse uh, an offer of marriage from the head of state, but she's a strong woman, maybe she can. What really interests me in Isabella is in the scene with Claudio, which is one of the great scenes of the play, it starts that he says, you mustn't do this, make the sacrifice for me. And it ends with um, him saying, please, please let me live. Sweet sister, let me live. And then she turns on him and says, to a best thou diest quickly. Oh my God. But of course, to suspend judgment for a bit. There's a sort of thing we often do when we're feeling guilty or confused. To say something cruel is a kind of a good way to distract ourselves from the fact that we are uncertain and insecure the uncertainty that's so terrible. Because, of course, she is uncertain. I think she does a performance of certainty in the scene with Claudio with some hope that he'll say yes, yes, and he'll, he'll bear up her performance of certainty. And then he doesn't. And he makes her uncertain. And we don't like to be uncertain. Tolerating uncertainty is one of the great marks of adulthood, and it's very difficult for any of us to do it. And her very first line in the play is about this kind of tough version of herself. Yes, she's like a fundamentalist zealot. She opens the play, her first line is, she's a novice in the convent, and she says to the mother superior, don't you have any harder rules for me? It's an interesting aspect of humanity that we absolutely love rules, like people surf the internet and find, want to find rules for thought, rules for behaviour, rules for opinions, and then it's fine, they've run off and they've got their rules. We, we look for rules all the time, but particularly when life is scary and uncertain, we, we just need the rules. And then we can go against them. We can be contrary. But that gives us some sense of existence. At the beginning, it seems like Isabel has been completely captured by the left side of her brain. She can't have enough rules, and they can't be tough enough. So her first line, like, you know, Othello's or Macbeth's or Hamlet's, um, makes one think, oh, God, this is a disaster waiting to happen. But in fact, she confounds that expectation, and she develops and changes. She manages to change through the play. She suffers through the play, and she, she changes. And she's so on the ball, spiritually and, and politically, and she says to Angela, you know, a proud man dressed in a little brief authority. There's so many people in the news today that we could apply that to. <laughs> oh, so much. And it's one of those interesting moments in Shakespeare, which is absolutely from her passionate centre. There's no self-deception, I don't think. At that moment, she kind of goes for it. And she's like a, a tiger, and, and, and not at all the nun who was wanting to obey even more strict rules from the Mother Superior at the beginning. And I have to say, I loved it that you left that last moment 
so complex and so ambiguous about what this marriage was going to be because so often you see the end of Measure for Measure with Isabella and the Duke in this kind of resolution of marriage and seeing her having so much agency at the end and also leaving us on a cliffhanger where we felt like, oh, what's going to happen to Vienna next was wonderful. Yes, I mean, but she also does have this extraordinary moment when in a way... She humiliates us all when she asks for Angelo to be forgiven. I really wanted to make it very, very clear that this is a very big moment. So I had the whole company would go upstage. She turns down and she kneels. And then everybody turns to see this astonishing moment that she's knelt to beg for his forgiveness. And that's, I think, very, very strong. Many people would be angry with Isabella for thinking that she proposed to forgive Angelo. No, he should be punished. He should be punished. And that's a very good moment to think about our hunger to punish people, look in the mirror and see if we haven't started to look like Angelo. And Nick, what was your favourite moment to put on stage in Measure for Measure? The Dance of Death was one of my favourite moments when the whole story of Mariana is revealed and Angelo's attachment to a previous engagement and it was performed in a Dance of Death and musically it was fantastic. To just describe that moment, you had Claudio in the middle playing a double bass and this incredible movement of the whole company looking like a medieval dance of death, this set piece where we see death leading everybody towards the grave and this kind of waltz-like music as they whipped around him desperately playing the double bass in the middle. Destruction seemed to be winding around Vienna. So our final question of today is, who from Measure for Measure would you like to invite as a special guest on this podcast, if you could? Nick, who would you like to have a conversation with from Measure for Measure? Well, I suspect that Mariana, Angelo's ex-fiancé, might have a few stories to tell. I think she might be a good entertainment. (laughs) So alongside Mariana, Angelo's ex, Declan, who would you invite as a special guest onto the podcast? I'd invite Isabella with a proviso, not like the beginning Isabella, because she'd be very scary, I think. But Isabella at the end, after she's become less certain and so more mature. So Mariana, Angelo's ex, and Isabella, but Isabella at the end of the play, would be our star special guests if we could have them. Well, thank you very much both. And we're going to join next week to talk about The Revenger's Tragedy. Thanks very much. Stay well. Thanks a lot, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True But Useful. If you enjoyed today's conversation and wish that you could see Declan and Nick's production of Measure for Measure, well, you're in luck. The whole performance is available for free on Cheek by Jail's website if you sign up for our education packs. You can also sign up to the Cheek by Jowl mailing list to get more information about goodies just like this straight to your inbox. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Canine for Cheek by Jowl's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Pavel Akimkin for Measure for Measure. Join us next week for more chats about plays. And until then, stay well. <laughs>